So we started a homily series last week on the state of the church. Um, I mentioned uh, if at any time you need to catch up, if you have to go to Mass someplace else on a weekend or something, you can go onto the parish website, and there's a link on the left side or a button or a tab you can click on, homilies or audio, and you can uh, catch up if you need to. Anyway, so the, t- looking at the state of the church, and the, kind of the purpose of this is, um, I think it's it's worthwhile thing for us to do at any given time, but also just knowing, like, we see the church mentioned in different headlines. We hear about the Pope saying this, or allowing for this, or doing this, or that, or that, or bishops, you know, and their, their behavior, good or bad, and, and so it's like, what the heck is going on in the church that we're in? And so it just seems like a worthwhile thing to talk about it. Um, so I thought, I thought this week I'd give you like a little bit of a table of contents. So last week we began by looking at the purpose and the mission of the church that Jesus establishes, which we'll look at uh, in just a minute, just take a little bit of review. This week we're going to look at the church in the Bible. Uh, next week is going to be the church throughout history. And then the week after that is going to be our current situation. So those two weeks, I would say next week and the week after are like probably the heart of, of this series where we start to look at, okay, how has the church be, behaved? since biblical times uh, throughout history, including in our day and age. And then the last one, right before Lent begins, I'm going to give just something of a little bit of a forecast for the future, at least the way that I see things are going to look in the future. Now, we know that people making forecasts, such as weathermen, tend to be wrong from time to time or all the time. So I, I may or may not be correct. I happen to think that I will be correct, but I might just be another weatherman. So we'll, we'll see what that looks like. So first, just last week, a little bit of review, the purpose and the mission of the church. We looked at this church that Jesus establishes, the the Catholic church specifically, that we can historically go back in time and see that this is the church that Jesus established, which is the Catholic church. So why why did Jesus establish this church on the rock of Peter? He says, you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And then he gives him this office. And then from there, he institutes the apostles as leaders in the church. And we know that throughout history, there have been successors to these offices that have taken place, uh, including and up to Pope Francis today. And we looked at why does Jesus establish this? And he establishes it because he wants there to be a community that can be a sign of his living presence among his people, among the world, so that this people share in his life and sharing in his life, they can radiate his light and reveal to the world what it, what it means, what it looks like to know that God is among us. And, and so to radiate that light and help people to see more clearly, to help bring people together in unity, and perhaps to bring people into this light as, as they see it and they want to be drawn into the light. Like that's, that's what's in his mind. So then, of course, it makes sense that he gives his church one primary task. And that one primary task is to make disciples of himself. That, that he, uh, his ministers, his leaders of this church would go about preaching and teaching in his name with his authority, telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand, similar to how we just heard this in our gospel passage. Jesus begins by calling people to repentance and telling them that the kingdom is at hand. And so we got to join up with that. That's like what it is to be a, a, a leader of the church or a member of the church for that matter, is to go about preaching and teaching people, telling them like, look, Jesus is real, and we got we to join up with him. we got to become his disciples. And so to teach them, like, what does it mean to be a disciple? How is it that I can be a disciple? To be a disciple, of course, means to be a student, but not just for the sake of getting information, to be a student for the sake of imitation, so that I learn from Jesus so that I can act like him. I learn from him so that I can speak like him, and I learn from him even so that I can think like him. Which, if we understand who Jesus is, right? If we don't know who Jesus is, it's like, that's not really that big of a deal. But if we understand 
that Jesus is God, then it's not just that I'm acting like Jesus, that I'm speaking like Jesus, that I'm thinking like Jesus, but I'm acting like God. I'm speaking like God and I'm thinking like God. Which that, if, if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, oh man, he's, he's inviting me and you as his disciples, if we are his disciples, he's calling us like up to his level to, to live our human lives in like a, a, a next level kind of way, an excellent, supreme, holy kind of way. Like that's, so that's like, that's the mission. And so we, we kind of finished by asking this question of like, okay, is that your experience of the church? Is that my experience of the church? That we've been taught that it doesn't matter what the rest of my life looks like, good or bad, fortunate or unfortunate. If I'm, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I have fulfilled the goal that he has for me. And if I'm not a disciple of Jesus, that is, if I'm not acting like him, if I'm not speaking like him, if I'm not thinking like him, then I've actually fallen short of the goal that God has for my life, which is a terrible tragedy. So now this week, we want to we wanna look at that. Okay, so we, we laid out kind of like the, the, the vision of Jesus. Now we want to ask a question like, how, how does the church in the Bible look and of course, when we think about this, of course, we naturally want to think about the church in the New Testament because Jesus says, you're, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so, like, what, what, what's going on? So the New Testament was written in Greek. So the Greek word for church is ekklesia, uh, which comes from like a little phrase, ekkaleo, to call out of. So Jesus establishes this community of people who are called out of the normal, mundane way of life that all humans experience that tends toward sin, that tends toward rebellion, that tends toward death. God calls them, he, Jesus calls them out of that life to, layer, to share in his own life. And so we want to ask that question, like, what does that church look like? But before we ask that question, in fact, what's, what's really cool is that we actually see the church in the Old Testament. It's not the Christian church, but we see the church in the Old Testament as well. So the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. So you're not going to see the word ecclesia in the Old Testament, but you're going to see the equivalent of it, right? Just like if I was to go to, uh, to Mexico and talk to people about my hat that I love wearing, I wouldn't talk to them about my hat. I would talk to them about my sombrero, which of course is a hat, right? But it's a different language, the same word in a different language. So the, the Greek word is ekklesia. The Hebrew word is kehal. So the kehal of God is the church of God, the assembly of God's people that he gathers together, that he calls out of something so that they can fulfill his purposes. So this begins ultimately in the, the book of Exodus, you know, where God's people are enslaved in Egypt and he calls to Moses and he says, you got to set my people free, all these things. So he calls his people out of Egypt so that they can go into the desert and do three things. So in the desert, God calls his people to know him, to love him, and to serve him. To know him, to love him, and to serve him. And how do we know this? We know this because we can see what he provides for his people while they're in the desert. He provides for them this box, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant are these signs of God's power and his presence among his people. So that wherever they carry this box, the Ark, this is known to be like the holiest place on earth in their midst. So they take this box, the ark, and they place it inside of this tent, which is called the tent of meeting. So that whenever anybody goes into the tent of meeting, they're not, they're not just going into empty space with a box in it, but they're going into the tent of meeting to meet with who? To meet with God. That's, that's the idea. So, so, and, and who was the primary one that went into this tent of meeting was Moses. So that when Moses went into this tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle, when he would go in there, 
Everybody would stand up because they knew that Moses was going into this place that was sacred, that was holy, that was a place where God could become known to them. Like, that's, that's incredible. Again, if, if, if you believe in this and if you understand who God is, like, it's so incredible that the God who creates everything, who's far more expansive than, than what we can possibly understand, that God comes down to us or to the people and he dwells in a tent so that they can see him in a kind of way like face to face. So God calls his people out of Egypt so that they can know him. He calls them so that they can love, them, love him. How do we know that? We know that because God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai. And while he's up on Mount Sinai, he gives him what? He gives him the law, the Ten Commandments. So that by following those commandments, the people can prove their love for God by showing that they love God more than they love anything or anyone else. We actually know this because jumping ahead to the New Testament, we know that Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we can apply the same thing to the people in the Old Testament. If they love God, they will keep his commandments. So God calls them to know him and to love him through these incredible gifts that he gives and then to serve him. Another way to say that, that he calls them to serve him is to say that he calls them to worship him. Up on the mountain, Moses uh, is he's given by God the instructions that God wants for sacrificial worship. He provides for them the way that they are to worship him, which is pleasing to him and, and, and desirable from his perspective. So he tells them, this is how you are to worship me, to sacrifice these animals or to wear these vestments, these clothes, to, to perform these rituals in this kind of a way. And in doing this, again, the people are putting God's preferences above their own so they're able to worship him on his terms. And in doing that, of course, they're proving that they love him and they're concerned about what he wants and not what they want. This is like incredible thing. So like this is the vision that's laid out for the people. So now we can ask the question like, okay, well, does, is that how they do it? Is that how the assembly of God, the church of God in the Old Testament, is that, is that what they do? And the answer ultimately is, is unfortunately no, most of the time. In fact, while Moses is up on the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments and receiving the laws for worship, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain saying, you know what, we're going to forget about Moses and we're just going to do our own thing. And so they take off all of their golden jewelry that they're wearing. They give it to Aaron, their high priest, and Aaron puts it into a fire. And so it turns into this like liquid gold type thing, malleable stuff. And he forms out of it this golden calf, like a young bull. It looks like that. And they start to worship this golden calf rather than worshiping the Lord, the true God. They turn away, almost immediately, they turn away from God and toward their own desires, their own devices. God has called them up the mountain and the people, rather than going up, they insist on staying at the bottom. They insist on going their way, their way that leads to death and sin and rebellion against God. It's a really sad and tragic thing. And this is, this is something that happens throughout the Old Testament, actually, is that God continues to give these things to the people. And whenever the people turn away from him, he sends people, prophets. Prophets to do what? To, to call God's people, again, out of their sinfulness and back toward him, to reorient themselves back to the Lord. And whenever the prophets come, the people oftentimes, they'll say, you know what, that makes sense. We need to do this. And so they'll repent of their sins and they'll reorient themselves back towards the Lord. And they'll do that for a time until they just sort of get bored. They give up. They, they get distracted. And so again, they turn away. This pattern repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And Moses actually, even at one point, Moses, the great and holy man of, that he is, he himself gets caught up into this process. Even just for a minute, he turns away from the Lord and toward himself ultimately 
so that he too gets caught up into this tragic and sad thing, right? So, so like this, this is what happens uh, throughout the Old Testament, the church, the, the assembly of God's people through, throughout the Old Testament. So now when we see Jesus come along in the New Testament and establish a church on the rock of Peter, I think there's probably an expectation, it's a reasonable expectation that, okay, well, because Jesus is doing it, uh, he knows what he's doing, and so it's going to be better now. It's it, like things are going to like just flow a lot more smoothly. The people are not going to stray, anything like that. And unfortunately, what we see is that the pattern just repeats itself. In fact, right after Jesus establishes his church on the rock of Peter, right after that, he tells his disciples, "Okay, now actually, I'm going to like eventually, it's going to happen that I'm going to I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be uh, scourged and suffer at the hands of these men, and I'm going to be uh, crucified and die." but then I'm gonna rise from the dead. So Jesus tells them that he's gonna suffer and that he's gonna suffer all these punishments. And Peter, the rock, he's the one who steps forward and he says, God forbid, Lord. Right away, from the moment of being instituted as the first leader of his people, as the first pope, what does he do? He starts arguing with Jesus, revealing that he just doesn't get it. And so Jesus turns to him and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling stone to me. From the very first moment of the church's birth and institution, it's revealed that the, the first leader just doesn't get it. And there are other scenes throughout the Gospels where this takes place. Philip, one of the apostles, comes to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. We'll be satisfied. And Jesus responds by saying, dude, have I been with you for so long and you still don't get it? You still don't understand that just by seeing me, you see the Father? Right? It's revealed like you still, you, you still don't understand it. Later on, James and John, these two brothers of Zebedee that we heard about in our gospel passage, they come up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, let us sit at one at your right, one at your left. Give us the choice spots in your kingdom. And Jesus is just like, you don't know what you're asking. You just don't get it. After Jesus dies and rises from the dead, he appears to the apostles. We know that Thomas was not there the first time. So Jesus leaves. Thomas comes back. The other apostles tell him, we've seen the Lord. Like, this is incredible. And Thomas is like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to believe it. Unless I touch his wounds, I will not believe. So then Jesus comes later on. He's like, fine, touch my wounds and stop being unbelieving and start believing. Blessed are those who see or who believe without seeing. Right? So it's just like regular. In fact, we know, of course, that, that when Jesus is arrested, when he's crucified, all but one of the apostles abandons him and jumps ship. Peter himself denies Jesus three times. So in other words, what's the point of this? The point of this is that, that the leadership of the church from the very beginning has revealed that they just don't quite get it all the time. That there's something corrupt about their minds that they're like unable or unwilling to come up to Jesus's level, to think like him, to act like him, to speak like him at all times. And sometimes they just insist on being at the bottom of the mountain. Now, there is a great moment of hope, actually, in the story. The great moment of hope is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit is given to them, falling on them like flames of fire, falling on their heads, and there's this great, like, launching period or launching moment into the, into the world where the church that Jesus establishes, it changes. There's something that is triggered in this moment of Pentecost that wasn't present before. Peter himself takes on a certain confidence, a kind of boldness in his preaching that he didn't have before, where he's no longer afraid of persecution. He's no longer afraid of, of being killed for his faith, but instead he's like, no, I'm, I'm happy to obey God rather than to obey men. The rest of the apostles, similarly, like, they're not afraid of proclaiming what God has done in the person of Jesus, and so they go out and they do it. They start living sacrificially. They start living generously. They're drawing people to themselves, and they become like this disciple-making machine that Jesus intended the church to be. 
And so because of this, it seems like, man, this is great. Like, like the church is one, they're united, they're together, and all of this stuff. It seems like, okay, this must be what Jesus had in mind. But we also read, if you read the rest of the Acts of the Apostles, you also see what? That there continues to be disagreements and sharp debates among the apostles, where they're arguing with each other about what is the right thing to do in this situation or that. We find out about false teachers who come into these communities that are established by Paul and by the other apostles, and these false teachers who, what? They teach people falsely and they lead them astray, reorienting them not toward the Lord, but toward worldly, sinful ways. We see that, what, that even Peter still gets caught up into this. St. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Galatians, that there's a moment where Peter is not behaving in a way that is fitting for a Christian to behave. He's not behaving especially in a way that is fitting for the leader of God's people to behave. So like, the, and the point of this is, is not to say that the church is totally corrupt and that we should just give up altogether on it, but the point of this is to say that, that none of this is surprising to Jesus, and yet he has still chosen to give his authority to this church. He's still chosen to say, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. This, I think, is a really helpful thing for me because what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, next week and the week after that, is we're going to see a wide array of things that have taken place throughout history and in our current day. We're going to see that throughout history, there have been many holy and righteous leaders of the church of God. Many holy and righteous saints who have done great things for the Lord and have truly radiated the light of Christ and have drawn people into this incredible institution that is given to us by Jesus himself. But we're also going to see that there have been many evil and wicked leaders who have reoriented people not toward the Lord, but away from the Lord through their false teaching, through their improper behavior, through their abusive behavior at times. We're going to see this, and that can sometimes be really difficult to hear, and it can cause us to think like, gosh, it seems like this is a mistake. But if we can remember that this stuff was present from the beginning, and that still from that place of beginning, Jesus still chose to establish his church, we can understand that, yes, the church is not, uh, the, the leaders of the church are not perfect. In fact, we, we have never taught that the Pope is impeccable. We have never taught that the Pope is without sin. There are certain times when he teaches and preaches that, that we believe that he will not lead us into sin. But not even everything that he says, we believe, is without error. Not everything. And so to understand, like, as we hear these things, that this is the church that Jesus established. None of it is surprising to him, whether it's really excellent and really holy or really messy and really unholy. None of it surprises him. And so in some ways, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways it can kind of be okay if I look at the leaders, leadership of the church and I see corruption, I see false teaching. Like I said, certainly not in every way. And Jesus is going to judge those leaders who are misleading his people. But at the same time, there can be something comforting about just knowing like even the leadership of the church is imperfect. And so in some ways, it's okay for me that I'm not perfect right now, even though I'm striving toward perfection, even though I'm striving toward the truth, even though I'm striving to act and think and speak like Jesus. I can understand, look, if they're struggling, if they're, some of them maybe aren't even trying, who knows? But if that's the case, then maybe there's hope for me and for you. And it's in this place, above all, that is the same place or similar in the first place that Jesus is, or that God established in the Old Testament, which is a place, a community, where we can do what? Where we can know God? How do we know him? 
in the sacraments that he provides for us. We have access to him. We can love him. How can we do that? By following his commandments, choosing to keep them, even when they're difficult, even when it seems like people around me are failing to do so, I can choose to keep his commandments and I can serve him, to worship him in the way that he gives us. And how is that? That, above all, is here at the Mass. Right, to know that even if the leadership of the church is imperfect and sinful, or even if they're holy and righteous, whatever it is, for me and for you, this is a place where we can offer true and right worship to God. That's a place that I want to be. I hope it's a place that you want to be.